Thanks so much, uh, Darren, for giving us uh, that reading. If you can keep that part of God's Word open, that'll be really helpful. Uh, That's where we're going to be camping out tonight. We'll jump around a little bit, but that will be predominantly uh, where we'll be looking tonight. Now, if you're not aware, uh, we're starting a new term, and our focus will be on Romans across this term. It's going to be a great term. I'm very excited about it. And I want to tell you a little bit of the background to the book of Romans. And as I preach tonight, if you've got questions as we're going along, please remember that you can ask them at the end of the sermon. So you might like to jot them down on your Connect card or just prod someone and say, that's my question. I need to come back to that. That'd be great. Uh, I want to start by thinking about what is Romans? And to do that, I want us to think about the various ways that we communicate. Now, I hardly ever talk about my kids in, in sermons, uh, but on Saturday... Isaac had a good game of soccer, and uh, he got the, uh, the Man of the Match award, which I was very excited about. So I texted my dad to say, hey, Dad, Isaac had an awesome game. And uh, my dad responded with an appropriate uh, little, you know, well done, tell him I love him or something like that. When we want to do stuff like that, a text message is perfectly fine. All I wanted to say is, wasn't that fun? And just to communicate something relatively insubstantial. A text message is great uh, for that. Uh, what about a tweet? Well, I think I, I call a tweet uh, emotion light. Uh, you're either very angry about something or you're very happy about something, but you're not really particularly committed to any of it. You're just expressing it in an over-the-top way. This guy's uh, just saying that um, he was going for a walk on the roof of his house and found there was a couple up there already breaking up and he was about to live-tweet it. Fantastic. Uh, that, that's, that's Twitter for you. But see, Twitter doesn't bear big things. And so when a certain uh, president of the United States uses all caps to threaten the annihilation of Iran, the world has a little bit of a collective, huh? Because 280 characters of ranting doesn't really, it's not the the right medium for communicating uh, that they want to wipe out a nation, okay? And so there's there's a mixture between the message and the medium, and it just doesn't work. Instead, when we want to do something substantial, like perhaps threatening the sovereignty of a foreign power, uh, you might find a different way to do that. And uh, the way that we communicate with substance is generally by writing. Uh, Has anyone received a written letter recently? Put your hand up. Okay, wow, amazing. Compassion sponsor. Oh, that's really nice. Nice segue, Jeff. Great work. Um, so when we, when we communicate with our, our kids, but isn't it amazing? See, here's the thing. No one can spam you with a handwritten note. You know that it was personal and intentional, and generally that handwritten communication has great substance. That, that's what Romans is. Romans is a handwritten letter delivered with great substance. And it's actually a very unusual letter. Uh, We have lots of letters that are preserved from the first century and thereabouts, and they're generally about three to four hundred words, so they're relatively short. When Paul writes to churches, he likes to write slightly longer things, something like 1,400 words. So a much bigger thing is what he normally writes. So that's unusual already. But Romans is 7,000 words. So anyone who received that not only would have thought that it was a weighty note physically, but would have known that the author was doing something incredibly intentional to write that much in a letter. Romans is very unusual. It's unusual because of what it's about. It's the timeless Word of God communicating the glorious gospel of God's Son. 
That's what we're going to be focusing on, something of immense substance and value. And we need to hear the message that we're going to hear across this term, because our world tells us something other than Romans does, or that God does in Romans. See, our world would tell us that we want to get rid of God. You don't need God in your life. You can run your own life. In fact, you are the God of your life. In contrast, Romans tells you how to be right with the God who is there. We want to get rid of God. That's what the world says. Romans says, no, he's there and you need to be right with him. You're not at the moment. You need to find out how to be right with God. The world would say that we can just pass over the Jews. Uh, All they really are is a hindrance to uh, peace in the Middle East. Uh, Let's get on with things and kind of ignore the Jews. Romans says there is a place for the Jews in the plan of God. And it takes quite some time to say this is why they are part of God's plan. The world will tell you to be silent about faith in Jesus. If you must have it, that's okay for you. You know, we've done this thing, haven't we? It's great for you that you're a Christian. Please don't tell me anything about it. I don't want to know anything about it. Be silent about Jesus. Romans, in contrast, tells us to be unashamed of Jesus. And I want to tell you tonight why we should be. The world will tell you that you're brainless simpletons. Did you know this? Uh, All of you, I hope you found the box at the door. All of you have had to check your brains at the door as you came into church tonight. Isn't that right? That's what the world would tell you. The world would tell you that to be here, you must have abandoned your intellectual rigor. You're just a simpleton. I, I don't think you are. And what's more, Romans will give us soaring theology. It will engage the very best of our hearts and our minds. It is indeed a magnificent part of the Word of God, and you can't sit here with your brain switched off and make sense of it. Romans is a word that we need to hear right here in our church in Oran Park. And so I I want us to ask God to enable this ancient letter, this 2,000-year-old letter, to speak to us this term. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank and praise you that you, the author of this letter, will be here as we read it. We thank you, Father, that Your word is living and active, and we pray that you might help us to take a firm and unashamed stand, being proud of what you have given us in your son, Jesus. We ask that we might see that through the reading of Romans this term, in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, I said Romans is special. It's awesome, but but why is it so special? Well, normally I have my Bible timeline, and you guys will have seen my pictures, but today I want to kind of represent the Old and New Testament as a bookshelf. And I want you to look at the New Testament and see how does the New Testament start? Four books about Jesus. That makes sense. If you're going to have a New Testament after the Old Testament, you should start with Jesus, who the Bible is all about. So four books on Jesus. Do you know what comes after the Gospels? That's right, the book of Acts is the next thing. The book of Acts is the history of the early church. How did we get from Jesus to having a church that existed around the Roman world? I remember being so stoked to have found Acts. I'd grown up in done Sunday school. Everyone had told me stories about Jesus. And then I found this history book that told me how the church spread from Jerusalem around the world. It's a great read. Now, what's the next book, the very next book in the New Testament? Does anyone know? It's Romans. So here's Romans. It's not chronologically next. Do you guys know what I mean when I say that? It's not in order of date. 
the, the first book, our uh, first letter in the New Testament is arguably maybe 1, 1 Thessalonians. So Romans isn't the first book. Why is it in first place? Because in Romans is this extraordinary description of the Christian faith. And it's been recognized as such by lots of people. There's a man called Martin Luther, who I'm going to tell you some more about, who said that Romans is the chief part of the New Testament and the perfect gospel. The chief part of the New Testament. John Calvin, another, another theologian who I love, he said, if a man understands it, that's Romans, if a man understands it, he has a sure road open to him to understanding the whole of Scripture. In other words, if you get Romans, you have the gateway to the whole of the rest of the Bible. And then uh, Samuel Taylor Coleridge, who's a, a poet, a, ma a man of literature, he wrote, I think St. Paul's epistle to the Romans, the most profound work in existence. Well, that, that's, that's pretty impressive, isn't it? The most profound work in existence. There are lots of works in existence. And he says, this, this is the pinnacle, the pinnacle. Well, it's great. Did it have any much of an impact in history? I want to tell you about three people that Romans impacted. The, the first was this guy called Augustine of Hippo. It's a place, not an animal, okay? Hippo is a place. So he's a theologian, but he didn't start off that way. He started off as a rich playboy, a man with too much time on his hands, interested in philosophy and women, okay? And he found both of them ultimately dissatisfying. And so he was stressed about his life and where his heart was up to. And one day, as he was kind of in a, in a bit of a um, uh, de depressing kind of moment, he heard a little girl singing, take up and read, take up and read. And so he went, oh, I'll pick up the Bible. And he opened it up. And in, in Romans 13, uh, he, found, he found these words that, that basically told him, uh, where is it? Da -da -da. Uh, let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. Rather, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. Now, you can marvel with me at how amazingly accurate it was that that was the first verse he read in the Bible. But what happened from him was he was utterly struck. His life was completely turned around and he became from that point the theologian of his age. And so he's responsible for, I've put up there, securing orthodoxy. What it was, there was a lot of battle for ideas in the early church. And he made us stick to the path that said Jesus was fully God and fully man. And that we could know God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And this man, his writings and his intellectual prowess are still respected today, 1,700 years later. That's Romans for you. Oh, what about Martin Luther? I told you about him. Uh, he was a German monk who was passionate to try and be right with God. And he would pursue God in prayer. He'd get up at four o'clock in the morning and pray. In winter, he wouldn't wear a jumper so that he could suffer more. He was a man who had a disquieted heart. And what he was worried about is, how could I be right with God? As he wrestled with Romans... One day, he saw for the first time that the righteousness of God was a gift given by God to people by faith. What did that mean? All of a sudden, he understood you can be right with God by trusting Jesus. It calmed his heart, 
gave him great assurance, and from that time on, he was a completely different man. In the process, he started the Reformation that was part of the Protestant church. So he started the Lutheran church after he was kicked out of the Catholic church, and uh, he helped found, through, uh, through his writings and his thought, the Anglican church that we're part of today. So a huge influence. Uh, Another man is a man called John Wesley. Uh, John Wesley, uh, many years later, uh, was an Anglican minister who had a a, a disquiet in his heart. He couldn't find any peace or assurance. He wasn't sure what would happen if he was to die. And as he was one night in this, again, the depression seems to precede these things, um, he went to a Bible class and he heard someone reading Martin Luther's introduction to the book of Romans. See, Luther was saved wrote a commentary on Romans, and here, John Wesley is listening to that, and as he listens, he hears, you can be saved by faith. And he says, I felt my heart was strangely warmed. And from that, Wesley found complete assurance and founded uh, the, the Methodists, and then was part of the Great Awakening in England and America. In fact, a whole other reason that American Christian is through uh, John Wesley and some of his friends. Did Romans have an impact? Absolutely it did. Well, let's turn to it now. Who wrote it and where? Uh, If you remember from the reading that was brought to us in Acts chapter 9, we met a man called Saul who was on his way to destroy the church. He met Jesus and he was soundly converted. He was converted and he was told instead of being a Jew who was trying to stop the church, now he was a Christian who had a message for the Gentiles. Does anyone know what the Gentiles are? Yeah, Owen. Absolutely. So the world is divided into two buckets. You've got the Jews. This is the way the Jews thought anyway. The Jews, the only people God's really concerned about, we're the special people. And then everybody else was in a bucket called the Gentiles. And Paul had been thinking that way. Then God saved him and said, mate, you're now given the job of taking the good news of Jesus exclusively almost to this whole other part of the world called the Gentiles. So Paul was converted He was called to take the message to the Gentiles, and then he wrote this letter amongst many others that he wrote. Now, it says there that Paul was copied down. Uh, If someone was to say to you, who wrote Romans, you would say, and the answer would be, yeah, kind of. The man who wrote it down was a man called Tertius, who was actually writing down what Paul was saying. To be the person who copies it down is kind of like your scribe, or there's a cool word called amanuensis great word. That's the person who writes down the letter. So I suspect Paul was pacing around and Tertius was there writing it down. And that's why Paul's language just soars as he kind of gets carried away and excited. And I assume Tertius is scribing away. So who wrote Romans? The answer is Paul and Tertius. Very good. Uh, Where's it written from? It's written from a place called Corinth where Paul had been taking up a collection. It's about 57 AD, and Paul is just about to send some money from Corinth, Gentile churches up here, down to Jerusalem, where he's going to take the money to support the Jewish church there. His plan, as he writes, is to end up going to Rome. So that's his plan. It's written about 57 uh, AD, and the letter, naturally enough, was delivered by Australia Post. So that's, uh, that's good. Um, so who was it written to and why? Well, you know kind of the answer. It was written to a church in Rome, but this was a special church. There's some distinctiveness to the church in Rome. If you come with me to Acts chapter 2, 
Acts chapter 2. So just after Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you'll find the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 2, we see the church is started on the day of Pentecost. I don't know if you remember, but the Holy Spirit comes on the disciples. And as they stand up, empowered by the Holy Spirit, they start speaking in other tongues, other languages. And people from all around come and go, that's very unusual. And I want you to hear where the people were from. Verse 5 of chapter 2. Now, they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our native languages? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and parts of Libya near Cyrene. This is the bit we want to hear. Visitors from Rome both Jews and converts to Judaism. We all hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Here's the thing. The church in Rome was started without an apostle. No, no one of the 12 disciples went to Rome and said, hey, fellas, I've got a great idea. Let's start a church. Instead, visitors to Jerusalem who were converted took the good news back to Rome and started a church all on their own. So it was a church that was started without an apostle. It was a church that Paul had never visited. And so it wasn't like he was saying, hey, folks, I'm coming back again. I've heard that you've got lots of trouble. I want to fix you up. He's actually writing to introduce himself and to, uh, and to speak to them about the great hope that he has. So he hadn't been there before. And they'd just been persecuted relatively recently by the Emperor Claudius. So in this church, there were two types of people. There were Jews and there were Gentiles. And we can see this in the writing. It says in uh, Romans 4.1, Then what shall we say that our father, that Abraham, our father, according to the flesh, discovered in this matter? Paul's saying that Abraham is our father according to the flesh. In other words, we're descended from Abraham. That's Jewish. But he also writes later in the letter, in Romans chapter 1, that I plan many times to come to you in order that I may have a harvest among you, just as I had among the other Gentiles. So what do we see in Rome? A church that's made up of Jews and Gentiles, and that is a beautiful thing. Paul is writing to both, and we'll see that play out in the letter. Now, if you want to say that you've made it, uh, where do you want to say you've made it in the world? You've made it in New York. So here's a uh, funny little article where someone said, oh, it's just amazing. New Yorkers love uh, Australian coffee. Look, they don't know how to make coffee in New York, but now we've come, we've saved New York. Isn't that wonderful, you know? So when we say we've made it, we want to point to these great cities. And, uh, and so I actually really love this, um, this little T-shirt. London, Paris, New York, Dapto. Yeah, you get, you get how it works. It's really important if you've got a headquarters in one of those significant cities. It doesn't matter very much at all if you've got one in Dapto. But I want you to hear Paul had heard about the Roman church. In fact, it had been famous around the world. Have a look with me at verses 7 to 10 of uh, chapter 1. To all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his holy people, grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Firstly, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is being reported all over the world. God, whom I serve in my spirit in preaching the gospel of his Son, is my witness how constantly I remember you in my prayers at all times. And I pray now that at last, by God's will, 
the way may be open for, you to, for me to come to you. See, why was it important that there was a church in Rome? It was important because Rome was influential. Have you guys heard the phrase, all roads lead to Rome? Have you heard that? It was literally because in the first century, all roads led to Rome. How did that happen? Well, the Romans built all the roads. And so every one of those roads eventually led back to Rome. It was the heart of the empire. And so it was a hugely influential city. And the faith of the people in that city was famous. Hey, we've got a head office. We've got a branch open in Rome. There's a church in Rome who loves Jesus. That was pretty famous. And Paul, it said there, had longed to see them again and again. And so what was it about this Roman church? Have a look at verses 11 to 15. I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong. That is that you and I might be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that I plan to come many times to you, but have been prevented so from doing so until now, in order that I might have a harvest among you, just as I have among the other Gentiles. So we saw earlier that Paul had been praying for them. He'd been longing to see them and it had been reflected in his prayers. Paul says, I always pray for you. Now, I don't know if I can say that about anything except maybe my family. But here's Paul, saw the strategic importance of this city at the center of the empire, and he was always praying for them. But he had a plan to come to Rome. And I want to tell you, it actually includes Spain. Come, come with me uh, to Romans chapter 15, uh, which is just the, the end of the book. Come to me to Romans chapter 15, and I want you to see where Spain fits in. If you've got a picture of the Mediterranean, Paul is about to say, I've fished this pond. He he was told to go to the Gentiles, and now from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum in, uh, in Macedonia, Paul says, I've preached the gospel all the way around there, and now I've got my eyes on somewhere new. Have a look at verse 23. But now that there is no more place for me to work in these regions, and since I've been longing for many years to visit you, I plan to do so when I go to Spain. I hope to see you while passing through and to have you assist me on my journey there after I've enjoyed your company for a while. You see, Paul had a passion to see Jesus named where other people hadn't preached prior. He just longed to go to places where he was the pioneer, where no one else had laid the foundation of Jesus. And so he's looking around and he could see the rising star of the empire was Spain. Here was new thinking, new teachers, new architecture. There was stuff happening in Spain. It was kind of the hot uh, new place of, uh, of the Roman Empire. And so he's like, I want to go there and name Jesus. And so what he's writing to the Romans to do is, I want you to be a supply base for operations. I want you to be my headquarters so I can do this mission thing across to Spain. Well, where does he start in writing to them? So he's writing for the purpose of encouraging their hearts. He's writing to set up a mission How does he begin? Well, have a look with me uh, at this wonderful landscape. Uh, Does anyone know what city that is? It's London. And what's the building? The Shard. Yes. It it sits out like a sore thumb, uh, which is probably not quite the way the architects uh, would like it described, but it's very prominent, right? It's the most important thing there. That's, That's the gospel in Romans. It's the most important thing. And so that is where Paul starts. Have a look with me at verses 1 to 6. It says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God, the gospel he promised beforehand through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures, 
regarding his son, who to his earthly life was a descendant of David, and through the spirit of holiness was appointed the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith for his name's sake. And you also were among the Gentiles who were called to belong to Jesus Christ. See, Paul says that the gospel is not a new idea. It was promised in the Scripture. Does anyone know what was the Scriptures that Paul had? Sorry? There was the Old Testament. And so he's saying the Scriptures promise Jesus. Well, that means that everything before the Gospels in your Bibles is what Paul had. And he says the Old Testament prepares us for Jesus. Isn't that brilliant? It's not a plan B. It's not a new idea. Right from the very start, God had been preparing the gospel, the good news about Jesus. So the gospel is promised. It's a gospel concerning his son. So people might tell you that uh, the church should be on about this and that and all sorts of things. But one of the reasons that uh, compassion is such a great uh, great ministry is that it's Christ-focused, church-based, and child-focused, child-focused. Church-based, whatever it is, Christ-centered, church-based, child-focused, I think that's it. Here's the thing, it's on about Jesus. Even as it seeks to alleviate the poor, it sees the heart of that is Jesus. Where does that arrive at? It comes from here. The center point is the gospel concerning God's Son, Jesus Christ. It's worth noting, given our last turn, that he is called a descendant of David. Did we do any looking at David recently? You see here that he's appointed the Son of God by, by the resurrection. And we see that from 2 Samuel 7. Do you remember we talked about 2 Samuel 7? A promise was made to David that one day, one of your descendants will rule on your throne forever. Well, the undying king, Jesus, is the Messiah, the Son of God, approved and appointed by his resurrection. But not everyone thought that the, uh, the gospel was so awesome. Uh, this is some graffiti from a wall in Rome, and it's called Alexamenos uh, Worships His God. If I kind of make it a bit more clear for you, there's a cross, and here's uh, a crucified man. If I uh, highlight it even a little bit better for you, you can see here, there's Alexamenos, and he's worshipping his God, a crucified man with the head of a donkey, even worse than a horse. A donkey, and, and it, it, it's as much of an insult today as it was then, if someone's a donkey. So here's the, here's the thing. In Rome, it was so scornful to worship a crucified Lord that it was actually something that people would scribble on a wall to insult you. You follow a man who died on a cross. There's nothing more humiliating than that. You call him your God. That's ridiculous. That is utterly foolish. And in fact, that's what Paul wrote. In, uh, in 1 Corinthians, uh, he said that, uh, that Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But, he says, to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. See, here's the thing, brothers and sisters. Jesus looks foolish even when it was started. It was considered a ridiculous message to follow a crucified Savior. It was utterly foolish. And yet in this letter here, Paul writes these famous words. 
for I am not ashamed of the gospel. Because it is the power of God that brings salvation. It was considered a ridiculous message to follow a crucified Savior. It was utterly foolish. And yet in this letter here, Paul writes these famous words. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. Because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. First for Jew, then to Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. A righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. So here, Paul writes these famous words. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. Because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. First for Jew, then to Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. A righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. See, Paul says, I am not ashamed. I find in this gospel that the world scorns something glorious, or that the world scorns something glorious and powerful and life-changing. Why was he so confident? I think Paul was so confident because he was personally convinced. He'd had a real encounter with Jesus. Do you remember the, the blinding light on the road to Damascus we heard about? He'd met Jesus. So when you say, I don't believe in your stupid Jesus, he's going, well, I met him. He's pretty awesome. So he had a real encounter with Jesus. Secondly, he'd found real salvation. He was the enemy of God turned into the slave of God. He'd been utterly turned around. And so for him, he had a real encounter with Jesus. Do you remember the, the blinding light on the road to Damascus we heard about? He'd met Jesus. So when you say, I don't believe in your stupid Jesus, he's going, well, I met him. He's pretty awesome. So he had a real encounter with Jesus. Secondly, he'd found real salvation. He was the enemy of God turned into the slave of God. He'd been utterly turned around. And so for him personally, he'd found complete salvation. Now he found peace. Now he had hope. For Paul, he had then had a real encounter with Jesus. Do you remember the, the blinding light on the road to Damascus we heard about? He'd met Jesus. So when you say, I don't believe in your stupid Jesus, he's going, well, I met him. He's pretty awesome. So he had a real encounter with Jesus. Secondly, he'd found real salvation. He was the enemy of God turned into the slave of God. He'd been utterly turned around. And so for him personally, he'd found complete salvation. Now he found peace. Now he had hope. He had then taken that message and he'd seen real results. He'd preached in, uh, in places all the way around from Turkey, all the way around into Greece. And as he'd done so, he'd seen the smart and the lowly, the wealthy and the poor say, we see in Jesus life-changing hope. And he'd started churches right the way across the Mediterranean. There were real results. And there was a real urgency. Jesus had said, you will be my apostle to the better than saying, hey, you should go. Bring them along. We'll have a ball, seriously. Who, who's done the course with me? Has anyone? Yep. Did you enjoy it? That's the ringing endorsement we're looking for. Trust me, we have an absolute ball. Um, alternatively, I have a book, I believe at the back there, called A Fresh Start. I did this morning anyway. Uh, and it's a description of how to be right with God. Grab that. Take it home for free. That's a possible application. Maybe you're here and you don't know the gospel. This is the impossible application. I know the gospel and I'm ashamed. Uh, let me just, uh, it's not impossible, right? Many of you might think that. 
But I want to tell you, it's logically impossible, not, not practically impossible. It's logically impossible. It's impossible that you say, I know Jesus, and I, I want to keep my head down and, and avoid talking about him. That, that doesn't make sense. And so I'd love to encourage you, let's look at Jesus again. Let's find out why he's worth it. Come to Jesus for the curious and do it with me. Alternatively, can I recommend a book for you? Um, you can probably buy it while you're sitting there because Amazon and, and various other things work this way. Um, a Doubter's Guide to Jesus is written by John Dixon. And in it is history and, uh, and a great examination of who Jesus is. And uh, it's a fantastic book, A Doubter's Guide for Jesus. You might like to pick that up to help you not be ashamed. Alternatively, you might just like to read your Bibles. Um, you've probably got one at home. Read, read through Mark on your own. Find again who Jesus is. He's worth following. He's extraordinary. What, what about the necessary application? What must we do? Well, some of you will say, I do know and I'm unashamed. Fantastic. I'm unashamed of Jesus. In which case, I want to encourage you, join me. The rest of the world doesn't know how great Jesus is. Did you know this? They don't know. And so I want you to join me in giving the message of new life. Connect with people, care for them, communicate the good news of Jesus and lead them to commit to him as king. That, that just makes sense. And as we're doing it, let's pray for them. Pray for our neighbours, our friends. Let's pray that their hearts may be softened. And if you're looking for a little bit of encouragement, I found this book, it's so good. It's called 40 Rockets, Encouragement and Tips for Turbocharging Your Evangelism at Work. Uh, it's a great little book full of practical reasons and ways to get fired up about sharing your faith. Um, again, you might buy that one. I'll put some links in the newsletter. It's a great thing to do. I want you to not only know, but to be unashamed to name Jesus to the world around us. You see, our world will flood us with communication. Look at your inbox. Look at your text. What, uh, so many pieces of communication. And I want you to know, let all of them drop. We have a much better story than this world. You have, a, you have a story of hope. You have a story of a risen king. You have a story that defeats death, that gives purpose and peace in life. And I want to encourage you guys, it's not found anywhere else. The world can only offer imitations. We have a better story, so don't be ashamed. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the glorious gospel. I thank you for Paul and for his passion to take it to the world around. Lord, help us to be people who find out if we don't know and who live it out if we do. Amen. Awesome. Well, let me just tell you, if you haven't noticed, I'm a bit excited about Romans. Seriously, and we've only just started. Uh, I've been re I reckon I've been reading Romans for about 30 years and I just absolutely love it. And I want, to, I want, to, I want you guys to catch that. So watch out this term. Um, have we got some questions? Uh, someone got a question for us. Yeah. Uh, could someone run the mic for me? Have we got a kid? Oh, Karen. <laughs> Thanks, Karen. Hey, mate, ask away. It may not be a super relevant question, but I, it's sort of reading that verse there, obviously 16, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel because um, in its power of God that brings yeah. salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. Yeah. Is there a reason that's in order? Thanks, yeah, thanks so much for saying that, mate. Yeah, I think so. I think because God revealed his promise to the world to the Jewish people. 
And one of the things that we're going to see in Romans, remember I said right at the start that the world just dismisses the Jewish people. What Romans does, because Paul was a Jew, inside out, absolutely a Jew of Jews. He says, you know what? God didn't waste his time with the Jews. Theirs is the promise. Theirs are the covenants. And he says, if you're a Jew and you get Jesus, happy days. And so the the promise is for Jews first, because it was given first to them, and then to Gentile. And so it's not like the Jewish church is more important than the Gentile church, but it's ordered that way because of the way God introduced it into the world. Does that make sense? I think it's a great question, though. It's good, good reading of the text. So, yeah, thank you. Yeah. Carrie, you had a question. You've got the, the mic. I was just going to ask about, you were talking about Augustine reading Romans in 386 or something like that. Yeah. Just wondering when the Bible actually came together as the Bible we know it, because you talked about Paul only having the Old Testament sort of That's a great Torah question. stuff. So when did it actually come together so that Augustine could read it? Yeah. Uh, that, that's a longer, a longer discussion. In, in essence, what, what we would say is that um, Paul's letters were recognised as authoritative almost immediately. So uh, if you look in 1 Peter, uh, in 1 Peter chapter 5, I think it is, I'll see if I can find it. In 1 Peter chapter 5, see if it's not there, it's somewhere near there. Uh, where is it? Uh, no, it's not chapter 5. It must be 2 Peter. Um, oh, yeah, here we go. Uh, 2 Peter, chapter 3. Um, bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation, just as our dear brother Paul also wrote you with the wisdom God gave him. He writes the same way in all his letters, speaking in them of these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort, listen to this, as they do the other scriptures to their own destruction. Isn't that fascinating? So in a letter, in the Bible, people are referring to Paul's letters on a par with the other scriptures. Can you see that? Now that is a stunning piece of information because it means that somebody didn't cobble the Bible together in 1600 somewhere in a tower and say, congratulations, I just invented the Word of God. That's not the case. Paul's letters were recognised as authoritative right from the start. The Gospels, the assembling of the Gospels, uh, again, was recognised really early. And so we have uh, lists of the books of the Bible from... Uh, the, the early second century, where you would recognize the New Testament roughly as we have it around then. Now, there are various church councils and various things that agree these are the, the books of the New Testament, but it's basically that the books that we have today were recognized early, really early, first and second century, as being authoritative scripture. Um, so, when do you first turn up with a book? Well, there's some discussion about that, but you would have a collection of them all probably sort of three, four hundred, something like that. Is that okay? But so the thing to recognise, though, it's not a late invention. It's super early that people recognise God's word in these writings. Yeah, thanks, Caro. Another question? Wow, fantastic. I'd better stop. Um, if you've got more questions, come see me afterwards. Uh, thanks so much, Caro. Uh, and we do this every week. So if you've got questions... Save them up and ask me. I know Darren saved some up for me, uh, which he'll ask over supper. All right. Uh, we are going to do our Caring Connect cards. If you're new with us uh, tonight, 
Uh, we would love to make sure that you have a Care and Connect card. Have I got one? I intended to have one. Uh, if, you, if you're new with us, uh, we'd love you to look out for someone who's wearing a green badge. Is anyone wearing a green badge tonight? Who, who are we pointing to? Ali. You had yours on, yours had fallen off, John. Uh, basically, if you're new with us, uh, we'd talk to me and talk to anyone who's wearing a green badge. They're accredited uh, safe. Um, you might like to let them know you'd like to join a life group. You could talk to Jeff, who spoke to us about compassion tonight about that. Uh, you can sign up for your community news or let us know that you'd like to get connected through a new or newish lunch. If you're new, tick that little box there and say, I'm a new here, and uh, that'd be great. If you're a regular, can I just get you to write your name on the Care and Connect cards? That'd be great. Or a prayer point, something that you would like the staff team and I uh, to pray about on Monday. So I'll give you a moment to fill them in. If you don't have one yet, can you put your hand up? And we'd love to run one to you. No? Good. Well, uh, I'll give you a moment to fill them in uh, before we sing our final song.